As I mentioned, church, we are in First Corinth, First Timothy this morning. We're not in First Corinthians. I didn't prepare for that sermon. If you would read this passage, we'll read the first uh, eleven verses together. Paul, an apostle of Jesus of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you, urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to hear, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than, rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul writes to Timothy to encourage him. He's in some difficult situations. And maybe you have been in a situation similarly, either as a parent or at a job or maybe at a church or somewhere else where you or the group They've lost focus. They've just lost focus. You know, they, they call this vision drift. You, you have a focus and you've kind of lost it. And you need someone to pull you back and remind you what we're doing and, and why we're doing this. This happens when someone asks what I call the why question. There's been books written about this. But if you ask the why question and you ask it over and over and over again, it gives you perspective. Why am I talking to my child this way? Why are we considering making this decision? Why are you acting the way you are? Why am I acting the way I am? Ask the why question, the why question, and it begins to bring clarity over time. Just, you keep asking it. Do you want to try? All right? Why are you here this morning? Are you here because you think I'm just a phenomenal preacher and you wanted to hear that? <laughs> Why? Are you here because someone told you you should be here? Why do they say that? Are you here because uh, you feel like this is just what good Christians should do? Why? Are you here because the Bible commands you to, to not forsake the gathering in Hebrews 10? Well, why does it say that? Why are you here? If you keep asking that question about why you're here this morning, you'll get down to the answer 
that's something like God loves you. And He's called His people to live in a particular way that brings Him glory and helps them to grow in holiness. A large part of that is the local church, gathering with the local church. So it's good to ask the question, why? What's going on? Why are we doing this? And again, Paul writes to Timothy because the church in Ephesus, they're struggling with this, their, their focus, the why. Why are we doing this? Why can't we interpret the Old Testament the way we want to interpret it? Why is it that we need to follow Timothy and should trust his teaching? Why is it that we should follow God's design for the local church? And Paul writes to answer these things and to encourage him and to remind the church the big picture of why they exist, why there is a church in Ephesus, and what they are to do about it. This theme that we'll see throughout this book of 1 Timothy, Lord willing, as we go forward, is to protect the target. Protect the target. We're going to see this in verse 5 where he talks about what we're aiming for. This morning, as we look at these verses, we see that the church's aim is to love, and love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And in order to do that well, we must remember our aim, and then we must remove our folly. Remember our aim and remove our folly. Now, we know that Timothy, or Paul, wrote a lot of the New Testament. He wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament. An epistle, it means letter. This letter was written in the mid-60s, it's not the 1960s. That's the original 60s, right? The OG. Acts ends with Paul being in prison in Rome. It's believed by most people that, that Paul was then released from prison, went on another missionary journey in which he would have written the, first, the letters of First and Second Timothy, around, the, again, the mid-60s, and then in, in A.D. 68 was, was executed by Nero. We know that Timothy was most likely a convert under Paul's ministry when he was traveling around doing ministry in Ephesus on one of his missionary journeys. Timothy was young when he joined Paul's band of, of uh, missionaries and workers, late teens, early 20s, and then Paul sends him off to pastor this church in Ephesus. Now, this letter, 1 Timothy, as well as 2 Timothy, and then Titus are called pastoral epistles. Not because Paul's being particularly pastoral, or uniquely, he's, he's pastoral in all of his letters, but because these three letters were written to pastors, pastors of local churches. It's interesting because he's contending there, he's encouraging them to keep contending for the faith. Verse 18 of chapter 1 says, to, to wage a good warfare, to keep up the fight, to keep going. Remember what you're doing, Paul writes, and why. So that's what we are doing this morning. We're remembering our aim. Paul writes to Timothy. The first two verses are just packed with doctrine. Paul lays out the authority that he has to be addressing Timothy, which is very common in, in Paul's letters. He's like, I'm an apostle. I have apostolic authority. Right? There, this apostolic authority ended when the apostles died, so there's no more apostles on the earth. If someone tells you that, they're wrong, just so you know. Apostolic authority has ended, but Paul's writing as an apostle, and he writes to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, Timothy, from what we can gather, what 
smarter people than I can gather, and I read them, what they say is that Timothy had a, a Greek father and a Jewish mother. Greek father, Jewish mother. So, he wasn't like a kind of… he didn't really fit in anywhere. He wasn't Greek. So, he had this Greek citizenship and all that kind of… the, the, the culture that came with that, and he wasn't fully Jewish. So, he didn't have all the responsibility or, or the privileges that came with being Jewish. And here, Paul, writing to what is still a, a young pastor, saying, my true child in the faith. He's reminding Timothy of who he is. Something else that's unique about this introduction is in verse 2, he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. In, in most of, of Paul's writings, he says just uh, grace and peace. And here in these pastoral epistles, he adds in mercy. Mercy, may the Lord be merciful to you. You need more mercy. So, Paul writes to remind Timothy who he is and then what he is to be doing. Look at verse 3. I urge you, when I was going to, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies which promotes promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, the issue was that their focus had been lost. There had been people among the church, in the church, who began to be who lost focus and began to be distracted by all these other things, these kind of hobby little things like myths and genealogies, and what about this thing, and let's speculate about those things. They had taken their eye off of the target. And here, Timothy, Paul's reminding Timothy, take a focus, charge them, remember to instruct them, remind them, do not let them forget our aim our aim, what we're to be about is love. See, this, their dabbling or their distractions in these doctrines, in myths and genealogies, this speculation. Some people were writing how there was this legendary, there's some legendary writings that retell the Old Testament, and in that, they trace out these family lines from all these patriarchs and Jewish families throughout the centuries in, in, in the Old Covenant, and they trace them out. And here, these brothers could be sitting around discussing, well, I wonder if so-and-so is connected to so-and-so, and if this person is related to that person. What's it matter? You've missed the whole point. Does it matter who you're related to or these genealogies or this speculation? It doesn't matter. What does matter is the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, what is that stewardship? Some people say that this, this Greek word is, can mean two different things. It can mean just God's general administration, His management of the whole universe. Or it could mean specifically God's plan of salvation for His people. Given the context of this letter, I think Paul is referring to the gospel-oriented ministry that the church should be focused on. So, we have this contrast of behavior. 
You have this speculation, and you have gospel-oriented living. You have self-serving interests, making much of ourselves, the focus is on ourselves. What do you think about this person? What do you think about this person? How are they doing? Man, they're not acting like a relative or a descendant of Abraham. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. And then over here, you, you have just the doing of the gospel work, proclaiming Christ, loving people who are hurt, helping those who are lost, pointing them to Christ. So, you begin to see this contrast, spending time and resources on unimportant things. Now, there's no doubt that if Timothy went to these brothers who were talking about all these things, these myths and genealogies, they would have said it's important. They would have said, no, this is important stuff. We've got to talk about this because what if this and what if that and what if that? And, and what Paul is saying, like, they are missing it all. When you begin to elevate things that are so far down here into first-order issues, you begin to miss the mark badly. I think the one thing that is all through the New Testament, you can hardly touch a passage or a chapter without getting into something that deals with false teachers. You know, Jimmy was just preaching last week in Colossians about false teachers in the week before that. It's everywhere. And we have to be mindful of this. There is an element of a false teacher in every one of us. You have potential for being a false teacher. And if you think I'm wrong, and you think you're right, and that couldn't happen, you're in very great danger of being a false teacher. I was talking with Jimmy over about this this week, and he made this wonderful point. He's like, you know, the thing about false teachers, they don't think they're false teachers. No one who is a false teacher is like, you know what? I'm a false teacher. I'm false. Let's just keep this thing going. Now, if they're working like a, sh a scheme, that makes sense. But these brothers, people who are just earnest false teachers are false teachers, but they don't know it. And so, what you need to realize, what I need to realize is inside of all of us is the potential for being a false teacher, for wrongly dividing the Word of God, for wrongly understanding and interpreting these things. So, hopefully, that, that weight sits on you in a good way. And you think, man, I, I need to be earnest about what I believe. And this is why we do theology as a church. It's why we work out our theology as Christians together. No one is supposed to take the Word of God and say, you know what? I think me and the Bible and my dear stand, we're going to figure this out. Because you're not. You can't. It was never designed to be done that way. Theology is designed to be worked out in the local church with brothers and sisters who love God's Word, who love you, and can work this out together. When I speak about people and their salvation, and I talk about how people want to, they want to kind of go through life on their own without the involvement of a local church, it's the same thing with theology. Do you really trust yourself that much? Have you done such an amazing job with your life that you're just so confident that when it comes to the most important things in the universe to ever be or ever will be, that you can figure it out by yourself? Are you that confident? 
I'm not that confident. I just want to encourage you, you shouldn't be either. So here these brothers are going off. They're drifting away from their focus. We likewise need to guard that we're not drifting away, encouraging one another in the things of the Lord. He begins to tell them, stop thinking about all these things that don't matter and start thinking about the things that do matter. This this gospel-oriented ministry, this stewardship that God has given. And what's required? What's that take? What's required for a gospel-centered, gospel-oriented ministry that, that what we do as we gather as a church, as we scatter, how we interact with people, well, it requires that love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This idea of a pure heart and love that issues, that comes forth, that comes from a, a pure heart, that requires us removing out of our life idolatry and idolatrous things. Idolatry is the worship of other things. And you might think to yourself, Man, I'm not worshiping any uh, ornament in my house. I don't bow down to this statue. I don't worship an idol. And I just want to encourage you and remind you, if you don't know, to teach you this. You were made to worship Before you were made to do anything else, to work hard, to give yourself to something, to love people around you, to gather with the church, before you were made to do anything else, you were made to worship. God has made you to worship. It's your default mode. You can't turn it off. You can't unengage that element. You will worship. You will worship. So be mindful of what you're worshiping. Be mindful of these things. Our heart will worship something. If it's not God, it will be something else. And the other thing will kind of be a blend of you and what you can get from it. Success, money, people's praise, silence, peace and quiet, being left alone. All the things, your your children, your grandchildren your dreams, the next high or the next kind of sugar or the next TV show, the next football game, you're going to worship something. So be mindful of that. So to have a pure heart in order to have this kind of gospel-oriented love, you must remove idolatry from your heart. I'm not saying you can never sin again because that's impossible. You're going to sin. But as Christians, we're constantly working to remove idols. You know, you, you know, you deal with it and you set it down, and then tomorrow you wake up and guess who's just knocking like, hey, come worship me. Come, give me your attention, your affection. Find your satisfaction in me. Find your purpose and meaning in me. And you have to die to sin again, put it to death. So a pure heart requires the removal of idolatry. And we have to have a good conscience, as the passage says, which I think requires the removal of inconsistent living. Now, I'm saying these phrases as if they're absolutes, like you you can't ever worship or you can never sin again and you can't do anything inconsistent again. It's not what I'm saying. But you you know the pattern, the rhythm, the regular way you live your life is the removal of inconsistent living. God has given us a conscience. He's given you a conscience and me a conscience. 
And when the Lord saves us, He redeems us and our conscience. And if the Holy Spirit's working in us, we want to give good leeway, good kind of room for our conscience, informed by Scripture, led by the Holy Spirit, to operate. That's why we shouldn't go around binding people's consciences over things that we think are not biblical. You might have a conviction about something. You think, man, I personally think drinking alcohol is wrong. If that's your conviction, you're welcome to hold to that conviction. That's fine. But the moment you take a conviction like that and you begin to impose it on everyone else when it's not in Scripture, although in certain situations it might be prudent, it might be wise, it might be good for the person to abstain from those things. But as soon as you lay it down as, thus saith the Lord, you're binding consciences. As we must be mindful of those things as Christians. We walk that fine line of saying, this is what God said, we must submit to it, and also saying, I think there's room there for the conscience to operate. But to have a good conscience, we must remove inconsistent living. I don't know about you guys, but consistency is something that I am not phenomenal at. (laughs) Just not really great at being always consistent. But when I am inconsistent… When you're inconsistent and you have the Holy Spirit, He reminds us of these things, that we're being inconsistent, that Christ has called us to live a certain way, and we know how we're to live, and so our conscience, in our conscience, we should be obedient to those things. It requires us to stop saying one thing and doing another. You know, it's one thing if we feel the tension, like, hey, I'm just… I got angry at the kids, and I yelled at the kids. Not that that ever happens in my house. (laughs) Um, The reality is we have moments where the flesh reigns for a moment, right? We're talking here is about you choosing to live contrary to Scripture, proclaiming to be a Christian, but yet indulging in sin willfully, proclaiming to be a follower of Christ, yet at the same time choosing to neglect your spiritual walk with the Lord, choosing to not open the Word and not pray as you should. See, to have a good conscience, we must be consistent in our living. To love as Christ has called us to love, we must be consistent in our living. And then we we must be sincere in our faith, have a sincere faith. And I think this is an area where our our culture just struggles immensely with sincerity, just being really honest with with removing false motives. See, to be sincere, to be sincere in something, you must remove false motives, doing things for the wrong reason. Again, I ask the question, why did you come this morning? Why are you here? Are you here because you think, well, I've got to do it for this person or for that person, or my mom told me I had to, or, you know, is, are those motives false? Are you here because you love God and you want to obey God and you want to love others as God has com- commanded you to love them? Are you proclaiming to be a Christian because there's some kind of f- a reason that it makes you just feel better? It keeps your relationship with someone else in your life kind of easier? There's a removal of the false motive to have a sincere faith. We're genuine. 
we're honest. When we say we're Christians, we mean it. So this is the aim. We must remember this aim that Christ has called us to, that we are to remember that in order to be a Christian, it's not about just doing better. It's not about going to church or going to the right church or being, becoming a member or going through hoops and all those things. To be a Christian is to be redeemed by God from a life of sin and rebellion, having your sin and put on Jesus Christ, Him paying the price for that on the cross through His perfect life and then His sufficient death and His resurrection. That's what it means to be a Christian, putting your faith and your trust in Him for those things. And as He does this work in your life, it should change your desires. It should change what you long for. It should change what you're oriented to, how you spend your money and your time. It should change how you view people. All these things change. What was kind of selfish ambition, we, we want to talk about myths. We want to talk about genealogies. We wanted to speculate. That's kind of taking things and making it about us and what we think and, and how we are going to interact and all these different things instead of saying, no, we're going to trust God for salvation. This is His good work that He's doing, and we're trusting it in Him for these things. So quickly, the false teaching just, it just starts with simple idolatry. It just starts with little thoughts or I should say, less thoughts about how good God is. And then it transforms and it changes into maybe, maybe the Bible should say this instead. Maybe what, what the authors actually meant was this in the Scriptures. We start going against 2,000 years of church history and against what the local church believes. So, in order to remember our aim, we must do these things, have a, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And then we are to remove our folly. Look with me at verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Using the law they begin to puff one another up. They wander away, having vain discussions. And I'm sure all of us know people who desire to be teachers without either understanding what they're saying or why they're saying it. They begin to desire to be teachers and to be confident in what they're saying. This, they're confident in it, and they don't even know what they're talking about. Now, I just want to say, as a pastor, as a teacher, there's, there's a warning here for me and for elders and for teachers. Know what you're talking about. Now, there should be a little bell that goes off. It's like, you're, I'm saying I need to know what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the creator of the universe, the God who created all things. How in the world am I to know Him? It's through His Word. See, God has given us His revelation of who He is and what He's doing. So we as His people look to His Word. We're not making speculations. 
We're having vain discussions about maybe, maybe just who is God. Let's, let's just sit around in a circle and think about it and come up with some thoughts. He's revealed these things. So as teachers, we need to be people who trust God's Word, who lean on God's Word. So this, this use of the law, this vain discussion, they don't even know what they're talking about. Now look at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient. And he goes on for the ungodly. He begins to list all these sins. Many are, are in the Ten Commandments. And then he wraps it all up with whatever is contrary to sound doctrine. I love how Paul does that. He'll give lists in different, different letters of sins. And then he, he just gives this overarching blanket like, and anything else that you might be thinking, it's, a, it's sin if it's against God. Just like, just in case you think you can weasel your way out, well, well he didn't list my sin. He didn't list the thing I'm, ta- I'm thinking of. He's like, listen, if it's contrary to sound doctrine, it's unlawful. It's wicked. It's unholy. So you have this contrast. The law is used for good. Now, there's some debate among scholars as to what is the full or the complete or proper use of the law in the new covenant, in the new the church age. How are we supposed to handle the law? We know for one thing, we know one thing for sure, it reveals how we're to relate, relate to God and how we are to live. It reveals this nature, God's nature, how we're to relate to Him and how we are to live. Listen to this out of Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus is speaking here. He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. So if we are seeking to remove folly from our lives so that we don't become false teachers, so that we don't miss the mark, we must be honest with our own lives in comparison to God's law. Now we know as redeemed people Our righteousness is in Jesus Christ. It's in Him we trust. It's in Him we rest. He has paid the price for us. But we have the law before us to to judge us. Are we doing this? How are we doing at this? Are we loving the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind? Are Are we even trying to love the Lord with any of those things? Or are we loving our neighbor as ourselves? Are we seeking to be obedient to what God has called us to do? See, if we're not careful, the same mistake that the Christians or the believers in Ephesus were making is the same mistake that we could be making. We start to take God's law, and we think that this can be a tool for us to assess other people. And for us to just kind of begin to, to, to lay out and map out our own ideas of salvation before 
or without thinking about our own lives. Paul says in Romans 7 that it's from the law that he knows he's a sinner. It's because the law has been revealed that he knows that he needs a Savior. So the right use of the law isn't just kind of to speculate, to conjure up thoughts, kind of pull it out, pull it out, dust it off from time to time and have some discussions about it. And what do you guys think about this, the Tower of Babel? And, and what do you think about Jonah and the fish? And, and what do you think about the Red Sea? And well, those things don't really matter, but we can have discussions about them. There's, there's a parable there we can pull from. It's the wrong use of the law. It's the wrong use of God's Word. The right use is saying God has revealed Himself to His people. He's revealed Himself to creation. What does that mean about who God is? And then how do we live in light of that? How do we follow after Him? That's the right use. Well, it says that God has saved us through His work on the cross. Okay, are we living like that? Do we desire the things of God? Are we following after Him? We must examine ourselves and remove the folly, the misguided thoughts that we have about God and His Word. When we lose our aim, we can easily focus on other things, and our focus gets swept into things that are just not as significant. One, because there's nothing as significant for our, our focus to go to. But I just want to push on you. Where do you find your focus going when it leaves God? When it's not on the Lord, where do you see it going? Do you see it going to, like, selfish things, worldly things, sinful things? I want to submit to you this morning that God cares more about your evangelism, your own personal evangelism, how you're reaching lost people around you, than He does about who you're going to vote for, whether it's the, the local or the national level. He cares more about your evangelism than who you're going to vote for. Now, He cares who you're going to vote, and I encourage you to vote and think well about those things. But he cares about how you're obeying and following after Him. He cares more about your prayer life than your GPA or your, your kids' schooling or their IQ or their, how they're just kind of doing in society. He cares more about your prayer life than, than you think He does. Not because he, He's like, be regimented and do what I'm telling you to do, but rather because He loves you and He wants you to walk in His ways. Again, Paul is encouraging Timothy to remember the target. Remember the aim, and it is love. And if we're going to be a people of love, we must be sincere. You have a pure faith, a good conscience, a sincere faith, a good conscience, and a pure heart. That is how we are to embody or to, to walk out our faith, to show the love that God has given for us. Church, as, as we close, I want you to just think Begin with the question, the why question. Why is it that you're here? Or why is it that you have children? Why is it that you have the job you have? And I don't want to give just a blanket answer. Like, well, this is the church answer, so it covers all these things. 
But as you evaluate your own heart, your own faith, I do want you to think, why am I doing the things I'm doing? Why do I have the attitude? Why am I, empath- why am I apathetic? Why do I not care about the things of the Lord? Why do I care so much about what other people say and think? I want you to, to evaluate that and to remember what Christ has called us to. Remember the, the love He has for you. Remember that He has come so that you can keep the, great, the greatest command and the second command. You cannot do that on your own. But He has come for these things so that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. That is why He has come. That is why you're here to worship. That is why you work. That's why you do the dishes. That's why you go do your job. That's why you're here, because God has given you a beautiful opportunity to know Him and to love Him and to share that love with others. But that requires that we stay focused what God has done for us and who He is. Church, let's pray.